4: The AJC's trusted veteran political voices, Greg Bluestein, Patricia Murphy, Tia Mitchell, and Bill Nygut are the essential source for Georgia politics. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution's Politically Georgia. Sign up for the newsletter, download the podcast,
1: subscribe to the AJC.
5: You're listening to Breakdown, an exclusive podcast of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. For more information, including photos, court records, and video, go to AJC.com news slash breakdown. Also, please join our Breakdown Facebook group to meet our reporters and ask questions about our story.
1: Previously on Breakdown. The guys running down the road, they both grabbed their
0: weapons. Greg McMichael arms himself with a Smith & Wesson 686 357 Magnum revolver. Travis McMichael arms himself with a Remington 870 pump 12-gauge shotgun. Travis McMichael then moves from the driver's side where he's actually standing. When you open a driver's side door, the door is at his back initially in the video, and he's got the shotgun. He then positions himself around the driver's side door towards the front of the truck. As he turns and goes toward Travis McMichael, you hear a shot. Then um, you see Travis McMichael moving backwards with um, Mr. Aubrey. Um, obviously, they were engaged in a physical confrontation at this point. I believe Mr. Aubrey was being pursued, and he ran until he couldn't run anymore, and then turned him back to a man with a shotgun, or or fight with his bare hands against a man with a shotgun, and he chose to fight.
1: Welcome back to Breakdown. I'm Bill Rankin, legal affairs reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. We're reporting on the case involving Ahmad Arbery. He was fatally shot February 23rd near the coastal town of Brunswick, Georgia. We have three men charged with Arbery's murder. Travis McMichael, who fired the fatal shots. His father, Greg McMichael, a former cop and investigator for the local district attorney's office. And William Roddy Bryan, the fellow who joined in the chase and took the video of the shooting with his cell phone. When we last left you, a magistrate judge had presided over one of the longest probable cause hearings I've ever seen, and he found enough evidence to justify the charges against the three men. Meanwhile, the Arbery case had spurred the Georgia legislature to take up a hate crimes bill. At the time, Georgia was one of only four states without such a law. No doubt, GBI Special Agent Richard Dial's testimony at the preliminary hearing put even more impetus behind the legislation. Here's his testimony from episode two about what Roddy Bryan told investigators he saw and heard after Arbery was gunned down.
0: Bryan said that after the shooting took place, before police arrival, while Mr. Arbery was on the ground, that he heard Travis Michael make the statement.
1: On June 23rd, the General Assembly overwhelmingly passed House Bill 426. It will allow enhanced criminal penalties against those who target their victims on the basis of race, gender, sexual orientation, sex, national origin, religion, or physical or mental disability. Ahmad Arbery's mom, Wanda Cooper Jones, released a statement after the bill's passage. "I know Ahmad is still with us, and this law is evidence of that," she said. Here's longtime state legislator Calvin Smirey, one of the bill's co-sponsors.
6: I
7: am filled with joy and fulfillment. For on this day, we stand before you as proud Georgians, and I am one that has seen a lot of legislative initiatives in my 46 years. Armand Arbery's death will not be in vain. That is an example of what we are doing here today our best regards to his family. With the tenor and climate in which we live in as a state and as a nation, this is a defining moment. This is a defining moment in the history of our great state. We will never, ever, ever, ever tolerate hate in our state.
1: That same day, I got a tip that a Glynn County grand jury was going to convene and consider an indictment against all three men, but I thought, how is that possible? Georgia is in a state of judicial emergency because of the pandemic. No jurors or grand jurors can be summoned for duty. So I thought. Then I went and read the fine print of Chief Justice Harold Melton's emergency order, and I found a loophole. It said if a grand jury had already been convened before the judicial shutdown and the current term of court had not yet ended, members of that grand jury could still be called for duty, provided, of course, safety protocols were strictly adhered to. So I reached out to the Cobb County District Attorney's office and everyone else who could confirm the grand jury was convening. I got nothing but crickets. And that universal silence had me pretty much convinced my tip was right on the money. And no surprise, the following day we received a heads up there would be a press conference by Cobb County DA Joyette Holmes at the Glenn County Courthouse in the early afternoon.
3: Good afternoon. Today the Glenn County grand jury did return an indictment against Travis McMichael, Greg McMichael, and William Bryan. Um, we were able to impanel or excuse me, we were able to call in the grand jury that had already been impaneled prior to the judicial emergency. And we thank Sheriff Jump, the court administration, as well as the clerk's office, for making sure that we could be compliant with uh, Chief Justice Melton's judicial emergency order. That judicial emergency order allowed us to bring in grand jurors who had already been impaneled as long as we could do it in a safe way that went with the public health guidelines as well as social distancing.
1: She said the grand jurors met in a large jury assembly room so they could practice social distancing. Everyone wore a mask and was provided hand sanitizer. I wondered how difficult it may have been to get what's called a true bill for an indictment. Holmes said her office's presentation lasted about 90 minutes. As for how long the grand jury deliberated? The
3: true bill came back in less than 10 minutes.
1: So a case that seemed to be mired in the pandemic shutdown has suddenly cleared a major hurdle and with seemingly relative ease.
3: That indictment does have nine charges on it. Those nine charges are malice murder, four counts of felony murder, and four felonies under which the predicates for the felony murder charges. This is another positive step, another great step for finding justice for Ahmad. Providing justice for this family and the community beyond.
1: Holmes said Cobb prosecutors called Arbery's family as soon as they obtained the indictment.
3: The family was ecstatic to hear that it had happened this morning. Of course, with everything that's going on just around the country, with the judicial emergency that's in place, They had no idea when some of the next steps would happen after the last preliminary hearing. So to get that phone call that we were able to call in a grand jury and to do it safely, and that they returned a true bill, they were extremely happy about that.
1: There's no telling when this case will go to trial because of the pandemic. My guess is sometime next year. For now, let's look at one aspect of this case that I'm sure will come up over and over again. Georgia's Citizens' Arrest Law. And I'm going to bring in my colleague, Asia Burns, who's helping us put together this podcast.
5: Hey, Bill. It's good to be
3: here.
1: If you remember, four district attorneys have had their hands on this case. Jackie Johnson, the local DA, recused herself because Greg McMichael had long been one of her investigators. She then sent the case to DA George Barnhill. Barnhill oversees the neighboring Waycross Judicial Circuit. He didn't last too long either because the Arbery family accused his office of bias. As it turned out, Barnhill's son works for Johnson in the Brunswick DA's office. So Barnhill recused himself. Before he left, he wrote an extremely controversial letter to Captain Tom Jump of the Glen County Police Department, which had been investigating Arbery's killing. It was controversial because if Barnhill was recusing himself from the case, he really had no business giving his take on whether a crime had been committed. But he did so anyway. Okay, Asia, what did Barnhill say?
8: He
5: wrote, and I quote, It appears Travis McMichael, Greg McMichael, and William Bryan were following in hot pursuit a burglary suspect with solid first-hand probable cause in their neighborhood and asking/slash telling him to stop. It appears their intent was to stop and hold this criminal suspect until law enforcement arrived. Under Georgia law, this is perfectly legal. Barnhill then cited Georgia's citizens' arrest law. As regards Travis McMichael fatally shooting Arbery three times with his shotgun, Barnhill said McMichael was acting in self-defense because Arbery had charged at him. Barnhill then cited Georgia's so-called stand-your-ground law. It says a person confronted with deadly force has no duty to retreat and has the right to stand his or her ground and use force, including deadly force. Barnhill added people who properly and legally defend themselves are immune from prosecution.
1: We'll delve into Georgia's stand-your-ground law in due course. But let's explore the law in Georgia that gives private citizens the power to arrest and detain someone whom they believe has committed a crime. In the Arbery case, this is going to be so important. Under Georgia law, you cannot raise an immunity claim of self-defense if you are in the act of committing a felony. Let's repeat that. Under Georgia law, you cannot claim you were justifiably acting in self-defense if you were committing a felony at the same time. And we know Travis McMichael is going to say he shot Arbery because he charged at him.
5: So the McMichaels and Bryan will have to convince a jury that when they followed Arbery in their pickups and tried to hem him in, they weren't committing a felony. Instead, they were within their rights under Georgia's Citizens' Arrest Law to do it?
1: Exactly. As it turns out, Citizens' Arrest Laws date back to medieval times, to 13th century England. King Edward I apparently didn't think the watchmen, constables, and sheriffs under his rules were sufficient enough to subdue criminal behavior across the land. And I guess it would take a good while for a lawman of the realm to mount his steed and ride over to a crime scene a few shires away. So, in 1285, King Edward signed the Statute of Winchester. It stated that if a citizen witnessed a crime, they had to take up a hue and cry. That would alert fellow citizens that an alleged wrongdoer was trying to escape. The fellow citizens were expected to help run down and detain the criminal, essentially keeping him trapped, until the law arrived. And it was apparently pretty effective in those old walled-in English towns. If there was enough ewing and crying, the gates would be closed and entrap the 'er ne'er-do-wells.
5: So this antiquated citizens arrest law eventually traveled across the Atlantic. By our count, some form of this law is on the books in about 40 states, including Georgia.
1: As for Georgia's citizens arrest law, we have to tell it like it is. It has a god-awful, ugly, damnable history.
6: This law was literally written specifically to keep Negroes as slaves the same year of the Emancipation Proclamation. To look at the Georgia history of how many Black people whose lives have been taken, invoking this statute. To ignore that, I think, would be uh, injustice.
5: That's Reverend James Woodall, the sitting president of Georgia's chapter of the NAACP. He testified via Zoom recently during a legislative hearing. Because of the Arbory case, state lawmakers are considering proposals to repeal Georgia's citizens' arrest law.
1: And when talking about the law, Reverend Woodall talks about that time and that place. He notes that in 1861, the official code of Georgia was authored by Thomas Cobb, a lawyer, a slave owner, and a brigadier general for the Confederate Army.
5: He was also married to the daughter of Georgia Supreme Court Chief Justice Joseph Henry Lumpkin. And with his father-in-law, Cobb helped found the University of Georgia's law school.
1: And for a time, Cobb served as the official reporter for the state Supreme Court. And he wrote some respected legal works but he also wrote A Defense of Slavery in a meticulously researched treatise published in 1858. In the book, An Inquiry into the Law of Negro Slavery in the United States of America, Cobb explored the history of slavery in India, Egypt, Greece, Rome, Great Britain, the United States. He devoted one chapter to explain how slavery fit into the foundation of natural law. And just so there's no doubt about Cobb's thinking on the subject, I'll read this incredibly disturbing passage about what he called the physical, mental, and moral development of the Negro race. Quote, The physical frame is capable of great and long-continued exertion. Their mental capacity renders them incapable of successful self-development and yet adapts them for the direction of the wiser race. Unquote. This was pretty standard white Southern claptrap in that era.
5: But this was the person who first put together our state's official code of laws?
1: Sadly, yes. But Cobb would not live to see the enactment of the Citizens' Arrest Law, which I'm sure would have had his full-throated support in 1863.
5: Yeah, a year earlier he was killed in the Battle of Fredericksburg. He was 39. Here's Reverend Woodall again.
6: When the citizens arrest law was first codified in 1863, the state was seeking to address the growing number of enslaved Africans that were fleeing plantations to join Union forces during the Civil War. This revision of the code empowered white Georgians to replace law enforcement and slave patrols to keep the enslaved Negroes in Georgia in change.
1: In the ensuing decades, it got even worse, Reverend Woodall said.
6: Lynchings of African-American men and women here in Georgia by white mobs, making quote unquote citizens arrest have a particularly gruesome history. On January 22nd, 1912, four African-Americans in helmets in Georgia, three men and a woman, were citizens arrested and lynched, accused of killing a white planter who was sexually abusing black women, uh, black girls and black women. On Ju- On July 25 of 1946, Two African-American couples were dragged from their car at Morris Ford in Walton County, shot about 60 times by a mob of white men making a quote-unquote citizen's arrest. No one was ever charged with their murders. Although not always explicitly invoked, Georgia's citizen's arrest statute supported or allowed for many of these lynchings.
1: So what does the law actually say? Here it is, verbatim.
5: A private person may arrest an offender if the offense is committed in his presence or within his immediate knowledge. If the offense is a felony and the offender is escaping or attempting to escape, a private person may arrest him upon reasonable and probable grounds of suspicion.
1: Well, that's pretty clear, isn't it? Yeah, the
5: part about arresting an offender if the crime is committed in his presence is easy enough. But within his immediate knowledge?
1: Immediate knowledge? What if it's in his slightly delayed but still somewhat timely knowledge? Seriously, I don't know what immediate knowledge is.
5: Yes, and that part about a felony being committed by someone who's escaping. The private citizen may arrest that person upon reasonable and probable grounds of suspicion. First, the private citizen may not know his felonies from his misdemeanors. Second, reasonable and probable grounds of suspicion?
1: That's not exactly a high bar of proof.
5: I suspect that's the reason the legislature is looking into repealing
1: this law, and why the make Michaels and Brian will try to invoke it. The real problem is
4: is that that nobody nobody consents to an arrest uh, no, an arrest necessarily requires some degree of force and and whether it's just come along with me and you put your hands on the person's arm or whether you have to you know fight them into a patrol car, police officers will tell you that that there's some degree of force in every arrest. And so the real question is, is what level of force can a citizen use to effectuate that
1: arrest? That's district attorney Danny Porter from Gwinnett County, an Atlanta suburb. You've heard from him on breakdown before. Right now in Georgia, it says that
4: you can use the reasonable force necessary to to effectuate the arrest and to detain the individual, although courts have held in a 2004 case that a, in that case, a shopkeeper shot a person who was in the store and refused to remain, and the court and then he tried to claim that he was making a citizen's arrest for a felony theft and the court ruled that was a disproportionate use of force under the circumstances of the case there was a second case there was another case where a person pursued a burglar and beat him with a baseball bat and the court held that was a disproportionate use of force so i would say that the use of deadly force is is frowned upon in in the courts and and certainly uh, it shifts the analysis from a citizen's arrest to a defense of self or defense of others.
1: Porter said he's no fan of the citizen's arrest law. Frankly, they remind me of the uh, Andy
4: and Mayberry episode where Gomer Pyle was going around trying to make citizen's arrest, and uh, they usually turn out badly. They usually uh, they usually are by, with someone's misinterpretation of the law
2: what are you yelling about? Like you said, you broke the law by making an illegal U-turn, and I hereby, as the citizen of the town of Mayberry in the United States of America, arrest you. Hooray!
5: That's the Andy Griffith episode Porter was referring to.
4: Citizens arrest in this age of, of uh, increased police forces is really kind of an outmoded concept. As for the Arbery case, Porter says, from what he's heard so far. This is my opinion, but in my opinion, based on the information I know in the Aubrey case, there was, even if you, first of all, first of all, there was not sufficient probable cause or suspicion to believe that a crime had occurred. Therefore, there was no justification for Pursuit, pursuit, and detention. Um, the, as far as I can tell, the 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 most serious crime that could even potentially be considered was some type of uh, trespass or entry onto a entry onto a property. When Mr. Arbery ran by at that point, it appears to me that and and that the defendants did not have even reasonable suspicion that a crime had been committed therefore they had no right to make the arrest and and that
1: seems to me to be the basis of that case. Let's go over that. Remember on the day he was killed Ahmad Aubrey had stepped inside a house under construction in the Satilla Shores neighborhood just outside of Brunswick.
5: His family said he was out on one of his regular jogs and a GBI agent testified he thinks Aubrey stopped there to get a drink of water.
1: According to court testimony, Greg and Travis McMichael thought they had seen Arbery come out of that same home one night more than a week before, on February the 11th. In a police interview, Travis said he also saw the guy reach for his pocket, making him think he might be armed. He was so concerned he called 911 before he and his father went out to try and confront the guy. They apparently didn't find him.
5: So, on the day of the fatal shooting, a neighbor sees Arbery go inside the home under construction pop outside, and run down the road. This man alerts the McMichaels about it, and they arm up, hop in Travis's pickup truck, and begin pursuing Arbery.
1: So I don't think the McMichaels can say an offense had been committed in their presence.
5: It doesn't look like it.
1: But what about within their immediate knowledge? And do they have reasonable and probable grounds of suspicion to arrest someone who's trying to escape?
5: There's that footage from a security camera inside the home that shows Arbery walking around in the place. And he doesn't take anything. Of course, the McMichaels hadn't seen the video footage before they began their chase.
1: Right. And Roddy Bryan may have an even harder time making such an argument. The McMichaels had been told the guy running down the street had entered and exited that dwelling. Someone who wants to steal something and unlawfully enters a residence could be charged with burglary. That's a felony, even if they didn't take anything. Bryan just decided to join in the case when he saw two white guys in a pickup chasing a black man running down the street. Nobody had told him they'd seen Arbery enter the house under construction.
5: Even his own lawyer, Kevin Goff, seemed to acknowledge that during the preliminary
2: hearing. Whatever was going on before, he doesn't know. Whatever was going on with McMichaels uh, and Mount Arbery, he minds his own business on, on his front porch. The uh, only he doesn't know by, uh, followed by a truck that he does. And he does, with all due respect, what any Patriotic American citizen would have done under the same
5: circumstances. That's not exactly my definition of patriotism.
1: Even prosecutor Jesse Evans told the court he thought Goff's statement was asinine, which sounds about right.
5: I also don't think it's covered under Georgia's citizens' arrest law.
1: What about just calling 911? As for the McMichaels, we've seen no evidence so far that indicates Arbery had gone in that house to steal anything. If Danny Porter has it right that the only crime Arbery was committing was criminal trespass, that's also important, because that's not a felony. It's a misdemeanor.
5: So, to get right down to it, if lawyers for the McMichaels and Brian can convince a jury they had reasonable and probable suspicions that Arbery had committed a felony and was escaping, they could try to track him down and detain him?
1: That's the way I see it. Thanks so much, Asia. My pleasure. So that's the story on Citizen's Arrest, which I expect to be one of the pillars of the McMichaels' defense. And here's the second pillar. Travis McMichael would say he was acting in self-defense when he fired those fatal shots, that he justifiably stood his ground. Unless some plea deal is reached, this will play out at trial. When that will be, like I said, is anyone's guess. But we do have a court hearing to share with you. On Friday, July 17th, Superior Court Judge Timothy Walmsley convened a bond hearing for Roddy Bryan. Bryan is represented by attorney Kevin Goff. He's a bit of a character. Four years ago when he was the head public defender for the Brunswick Judicial Circuit, Goff went on a hunger strike demanding changes in the local judicial system. During that time he was fired from his position. For several days, Goff ingested only water with a mixture of salt, baking soda, lemon juice, and unrefined sugar, according to published reports. In legal circles, he became known as the hungry lawyer. It does look like he's lost a bit of weight since then. Goff is a lawyer who said he wants a speedy trial for his client, the pandemic or no pandemic. If you remember from episode one, he made this bald statement when he addressed the news media. We don't need to spend weeks speaking a jury
2: in this case. Why don't we just agree right now to go ahead and take the first 12 jurors out of the
1: box? The thought of a lawyer doing something like that in a racially charged, nationally known case is simply beyond me. And for a client who faces a murder charge and a possible sentence of life in prison? Wow. Goff has filed several motions so far. In one, he laid out in great detail the breadth of Brian's cooperation with authorities before he was charged and arrested. Brian talked to police immediately after the shooting and even invited an officer to join him in his truck so they could watch the video together. He then went to the police department for a lengthy interview and consented to a search of his cell phone. Later, in May, after the cell phone video was made public after the McMichaels were arrested, Bryant met on a number of occasions with the GBI. He let agents download images from his cell phone. He gave them access to his home security system. He took agents to Satilla Shore's neighborhood and retraced his actions the day of the shooting. In spite of his cooperation, or perhaps because of it, Brian was arrested on May 21st. He also was charged with murder and other offenses. He was still in custody when Judge Walmsley took the bench July 17th. Goff started off making an objection about a mask wore by Lee Merritt, a lawyer representing the Arbery family. I'm not 100% sure, but I'm pretty sure that National Civil
3: Rights Attorney S. Lee Merritt is important courtroom wearing a mask that has the words George Floyd
2: printed prominently on it, uh, and we object. Uh, if we are permitted to wear masks making political statements, then
1: yeah. Mr. Evans and
2: I in his home should be free to wear not a mask if we
1: wanted to. Court, I imagine the court wouldn't appreciate that. Cobb prosecutor Jesse Evans said, during this pandemic, everyone should be encouraged to wear a mask. And he pointed out that Walmsley, as the judge, was the only one who was going to decide any issues this day. We can talk about the importance of maintaining objectivity for the jurors when we get closer to trial, Evans said. It's here where we get our first good look at the judge from Savannah who was assigned to hear this case because all the local judges recused themselves. Walmsley was businesslike, dignified, respectful, and, even though Goff would test him again and again, as patient as possible.
7: In the true um we strive to provide a vehicle where the defendant will receive a fair trial. It is not a place. For political statements, uh, it's not a place for outbursts, uh, it's a place where we try to take care of very serious business. In this particular case, uh, some of the most serious business that we can address, which is a charge of murder. I'm not one for games, and I'm not one for wasting time on matters that um, although uh, in a way important distract from the business before the court. Again, I didn't even notice that mask. Uh, But if it's some, and I'm going to overrule the objection, but I will instruct counsel uh, and generally to the gallery. If anything in this court becomes disruptive, it is the court's uh, position uh, that that disruption will be dealt with. Again, this is not a place to make a statement.
1: Okay, here's a lesson in the law. In Georgia, the defendant must meet four conditions to be eligible for bail. He or she must show there is no significant risk of 1. Being a flight risk or missing court dates. 2. Being a threat or danger to any person or property in the community. 3. Committing another felony pending trial. and 4. Intimidating witnesses or obstructing justice. If those conditions are met, a reasonable bond should be allowed. Pretty straightforward, right? Well, golf had other things in mind. Uh, we believe
2: that this is the case that the court can and should consider uh, the substance, strengths, and weaknesses of the prosecution
1: in this matter. Jesse Evans would have none of that.
9: I don't believe that the strength of the case has anything to do with the considerations before this court today.
1: Walmsley agreed. What I'm not going to do is have
9: a bond
7: hearing where the doors are thrown wide open to evidence in the case admissible, inadmissible, or otherwise under the pretense that we're talking about the strength of the case. Mr. Goff, we're not trying your case today. We've only had a seven-hour preliminary hearing. I've read that transcript. I'm fully aware of that evidence. So we're not going back over uh, all of the preliminary hearing matters uh, as well as retrying a case in the context of a bond hearing. If you've got issues specific to bond, then so be it. I'm aware of the authority, but the authority isn't try your case on the day of the bond and then just kind of see how the chips lie. That's not what we're going to do here today.
1: Undaunted, Goff then tried to submit into evidence documents showing Arbery was on probation for shoplifting at the time he was killed. We are hindering that
2: because it is relevant to the claim of the state uh, that Mr. Arbery was justified uh, in assaulting uh, Travis McMichael in this case, understanding that Mr. Bryan's liability here is largely derivative of the conduct of the McMichaels on the day in question. their conduct was, in fact, justified, and, and Mr. Arbery's conduct was not justified, And with all due respect, there's no case against Mr. Bryan either.
1: Georgia's citizen's arrest law, justified Brian's actions, Goff said. We contend that the the knowledge of Mr. Arbery as to what he had
2: done in his past are relevant to whether his actions were objectively justifiable, uh, and therefore the shoplifting conviction would be relevant to whether he had reason to believe that he was subject to citizen's arrest uh, for his conduct.
1: Goff also tendered exhibits saying they showed Arbery had carried a weapon in a school zone and obstructed a police officer.
2: We believe those are both relevant to the assessment of whether or not Mr. Arbery was justified in attacking uh, Mr. McMichael, whether Mr. McMichael
1: was justified in defending himself. Arbery knew what he did, and Mr. Arbery knew what he had done in the past. To his credit, Walmsley didn't frown or redden, or just explode. In measured tones, he told Goff, hey, Let me be clear about something.
4: Um,
7: yes, the court's not going to be used as a vehicle to try the case
1: outside of the court. Yes, sir.
7: You understand the court's instruction? Yes. All
1: right. Goff then called his only witness, Roddy Bryan's son, 26-year-old, Preston Bryan. As I understand it, your father had lost his home?
9: Yes, sir.
2: Are there other family members in southeast Georgia without disclosing addresses uh, where he would be able to live? Yes, sir. Uh, And if he were to be released, do you believe he'd be able to find other gainful employment? Yes. All right. are you asking the court to release your father on a reasonable bond and bail pin trial? Yes, sir.
1: Preston also said friends and family would put up property for a bond on his father's behalf. When it was the state's turn, Evans then read a victim impact statement by Ahmad Aubrey's father.
9: I suffered
2: the deepest
1: loss of familiar a
9: family can endure when the McMichaels with the noble participation of William Rodney Bryan Jr. acted as my son's judge, jury, and executioner. I urge the court to reject the motion for bond and continue to keep Mr. Bryan
1: behind bars. Evans then called on Arbery's mother, Wanda Cooper Jones, to address the court. Bear with us, the audio here is not the best.
8: William Rodney Bryan inspired the two other men to kill my youngest son. Mr. Bayou does not deny getting into his pickup truck and chasing my son. He does not deny blocking his pathway. He does not deny recording the murder of my son. He does not deny deny being within feet of his co-conspirators as my son was called a racist name as he laid on the ground before passing away. He does not think there's anything wrong with what he did. He wants this court to allow him to go home. I am asking this court to say no, he cannot go home. He did not allow my son to go home. Because William Ryan did not, does not feel he did anything wrong, what is it to say to stop him from doing this again? He must remain in custody. He's dangerous, he's unapologetic, and therefore I'm asking court to keep him behind bars.
1: When it was time to argue the issue, Goff went first. He said there was not a scintilla of evidence to show Brian would violate any of the four conditions required for a bond. Then he returned to his view of the strengths and weaknesses of the case. Mr. Bryan was not in communication with the McMichaels or anyone else that, that day prior to the shooting uh, about what was going on. He has had, as a matter of
2: law, no knowledge of any unlawful. If there was such unlawful intent on the part of the clients Michael he cannot conspire to do something unlawful when he is unaware of it. He is in fact the state's star witness. If he had not made the video in this case, there would be no case. And notwithstanding the false narrative that has been painted, it is <coughs> utterly absurd to think that there was a lynch mob or a posse running around to the shores in 2020. It didn't happen. And whatever was going on between the father and son, Greg and Travis McMichael, my client doesn't have any knowledge or awareness of any unlawful purpose. He can not have such knowledge, and he doesn't have such knowledge. So it doesn't matter how many counts there are. It doesn't matter how you spin it. The state cannot meet the men's rate element. This is a directed verdict all day long.
1: A directed verdict all day long? Goff is saying that if this goes to trial, the prosecution's case against Bryant would be so weak that the judge would dismiss all charges before the jury even got a chance to deliberate. That's a directed verdict, and they are extremely, extremely rare. All day long. In response, Evans said there are a number of reasons Bryant may want to flee the area while out on bond. He said federal authorities are conducting a hate crimes investigation and may decide to charge Brian. He said the state had a pile of evidence showing that Brian routinely used racist language.
9: We have a number of text communications that were extracted from this defendant's phone, and they are replete with racist and bigoted remarks and communications, which goes directly to the risk of flight and concern that this defendant might pose a risk. Uh, once the Department of Justice has time to digest digest this. Repeatedly, this defendant uses the N-word, a term that I had to look up, boot-lit, uh, talks about monkey parades working like an n today. There's just a a ton of filth in this defendant's text regarding that.
1: Then, Evans dropped a bit of a bombshell. I've revealed this
9: to Mr. Golf, and he knows that we talked about it on the phone. I can confirm as of yesterday that the GBI has opened an additional parallel investigation into sex crimes that's stemmed from this. So that confirmation came by the email yesterday. I say that to say that this now also heightens the risk of flight as well.
1: Later that day, the GBI confirmed that the nearby Camden County Sheriff's Office had asked the GBI to initiate a sex crime investigation involving Brian. Evans ended with this.
9: This defendant participated in the chase, corralling, and murder of an unarmed man using a truck as a weapon. And uh, we think that those facts alone show that he is a danger to the community, and that should weigh heavily against Bond as this court passes upon him.
1: Wamsley said he wanted to mull it over during a lunch break. It was now early afternoon. When he returned to the bench, he'd made his decision. The order of the court is that Bond is
7: denied. The basis of the uh, bond is the risk of flight, primarily flight without plus 27 years is a significant sentence. I understand there are at least two ongoing investigations of this defendant, uh, including potential hate crime charges from the federal government and uh, some additional
1: uh, investigation by the GDI. Walmsley's written order issued later found other reasons to deny bail, including this one. Brian posed a danger to the community because the evidence showed he chased an unarmed man who was on foot with his truck, and the evidence indicates he may have struck Arbery during his pursuit. I have to say that it's interesting that while Walmsley said he didn't want to hear about the strengths or weaknesses of the case, he cited the evidence as a reason to deny bail. Just recently, both pairs of lawyers representing the McMichaels filed their own bond motions. So next on Breakdown, I expect we'll hear a lot more about father and son. As always, thanks so much for listening. Please, please stay safe during this pandemic. Practice social distancing and wear a mask when you're in a crowded area. We all got to look out for each other, right? Until next time, I'm Bill Rankin.
5: You've been listening to Breakdown, hosted and narrated by Bill Rankin, produced by Asia Simone Burns and Bill Rankin, edited by Jennifer Brett, sound design by Asia Simone Burns. Special thanks to Kevin Riley, Sean McIntosh, Leroy Chapman, Monica Richardson, and Pete Corson. Please rate and review us on iTunes or your favorite download app. We also invite you to listen to the previous seven seasons of Breakdown.